The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Now, shortly before the recording of this week's When the Facts Changed, we learned of the shocking death of Efeso Collins. Efeso Collins appeared a couple of times on When the Facts Changed to talk about Auckland when he was a candidate for mayor and his hopes for the future, for his communities, not just in Auckland but for Aotearoa New Zealand. He was a thoughtful and passionate politician I like listening to him. I like talking with him. And I know that many of the listeners to When the Facts Change will join with me in passing on our uh, thoughts to his family and his friends and his colleagues, not just in the Green Party, but in the wider communities of Auckland and Aotearoa New Zealand. Thank you. And our thoughts go to Efeso Collins, his family, and the wider communities he was a part of. Sometimes I just want to hijack the One News 6 o'clock bulletin or the News Hub 6 o'clock bulletin. I want to grab Simon Dallow and I want to pull him out of the studio and say, Simon, I've got something really important to tell the nation. Please, can I jump into your seat and tell them? That will never happen, of course, but there is sometimes I want to do that. And this week I want to do that on When the Facts Change. I want to explain to everyone in New Zealand the importance of credit ratings for local government bonds. If you're listening and you're thinking, oh, that sounds boring, I'm going to turn off this podcast. Don't. It matters. It's crucial for New Zealand. We have a massive housing shortage, the most expensive rental housing in the world, the most stressed renters in the world, the most expensive housing relative to incomes in the world, a massive problem with not enough climate emissions reduction, all sorts of problems with not enough public transport. And why? because our councils are not investing enough in our water networks. Why should we care about water networks? Because nothing, nothing happens unless a water pipe is laid. No houses get built, no bigger houses get built, no new suburbs, no schools, no hospitals, no houses and fields, nothing. Nothing happens unless a water pipe and a water network is built. And more importantly, we don't get to drink clean water unless it's properly maintained and there's a a water network that's hooked up to a water treatment plant and none of our nasty stuff that goes into the toilet goes anywhere good unless there's a water network for it. So it's boring but it's so important, not just for how we live day to day but as we grow. 
And we've got a fundamental problem here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The water networks are paid for by the councils. The investment money comes from rates. But those same councils don't get the benefits of all the population growth. So when we get an extra 2.8% of our population grow in one year, which is what happened in 2023, the fastest population growth since 1946, because we have a lot of migrants coming into the country. That population growth, the benefits of it in the form of GST spent by new populations, new migrants, income taxes coming from those people, doesn't go to the councils. It goes to the central government. So the councils go, hang on a minute, I'm having to build all the infrastructure for all these extra people, but you get the benefits. That's not fair and also means that I've run out of headroom to borrow to build all these water networks. So when you say you want to build all these houses and roads and motorways and schools and hospitals, no, you can't because we can't afford to borrow because we don't get the benefits of all this population growth. Well, the obvious solution then would be for the central government to pay for all of these pipes and things. But the central government, and I'm talking both flavours here, Labour and National, didn't want to borrow on the Crown's balance sheet, i.e. borrow more money with government bonds. Why? Because we have this idea that debt is a bad thing for a government to have, which, in my view, when you're using it to build infrastructure is just not true. But there's a political story out there which says debt is bad. And, of course, it's one of the arguments put by the new national government that the previous Labor government borrowed too much money and that's pushed up interest rates and inflation and we need to stop borrowing money. So, since the election, the 100-day plan of the new National Act, New Zealand First Government, was to stop the borrowing, to reduce spending. The problem was the councils... They now have no help from the central government in terms of capital grants to build these water networks or income to help pay for their own borrowing if that's what they need to do. That was why we had this huge debate about three waters. Labor wanted to create off-balance sheet vehicles where all the water assets would be put, where they would charge for water and they would be independent from politicians, both local and central politicians. Those vehicles would then be able to borrow money, they would have a credit rating, and they'd be able to borrow the money to invest in the networks. In my view, it just would have been simpler for the central government to borrow the money rather than have this at-arm's-length vehicle doing it with a margin on top. But that was the Labour government point of view because they didn't want to be seen to be responsible for increasing government debt. And remember and this is the brutal political truth, the place is run for homeowners. Homeowners want low mortgage rates, they want land prices rising, and they want to borrow money against that land, and a bank is very happy to do that, and to do that, they want low rates increases and tax cuts, because the more disposable income you have, the more you can borrow to buy more residential land. And when it goes up in value, as it's gone up in value by $1 trillion in the last 20 years, you make that gain tax-free. We don't have a tax on capital gains here. So, what has happened over time is that the central government has done everything it could to not increase government debt. Why? Because when the government debt increases, there's a slight increase in mortgage rates, other things being equal. And the same with councils. They don't want to put up rates. Why? Because homeowners 
want lots of disposable income. If they have to pay a big rates bill, that means they can't borrow as much. So we end up with a situation where the entire system is designed for homeowners to make tax-free gains on capital invested in residential land. The last thing you want, actually, is to have a council putting more land onto the market that lowers the inflation in your land values. The last thing you want is mortgage rates going up. So we have this horrible situation where the central government enables lots of population growth but doesn't invest in the infrastructure to handle it. Councils don't have the revenue tools to invest in the water networks that we need for all these extra houses that we need. And we end up in the situation where we have the most expensive housing in the world, people dying of diseases they catch from water, an entire city of Queenstown having to boil water for months. And ultimately, not being able to grow the country. Now, because the new government has said we're repealing three waters, they have yet to actually replace it with anything. Now, why am I talking about this? Because this week, Standard & Poor's, the grown-up of financial markets, has come out and told the government, actually, you can't just repeal three waters and replace it with nothing. If you do that, you're making the outlook for all these councils and their debt less attractive. We have put the ratings for those councils on negative watch. This week on When the Facts Change, we talked to Anthony Walker, the head of government ratings for Standard & Poor's based in Melbourne, who spends his entire life crawling through the books of councils and governments and listening to their statements about their plans for finance. In my view, and he wouldn't say it like this, but in my view, Standard & Poor's just called bullshit on the government's non-plans to deal with our infrastructure problems. And as you hear in this interview, the clearest, fastest way to deal with this issue is for the government to borrow with vanilla government bonds to build those water networks and to kick off the process of growing our cities. Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to Anthony Walker, who is the Director of Government Ratings at Standard & Poor's, calling us from Melbourne. Lovely to see you, Anthony. Thanks for having me. So for an audience who are maybe not completely familiar with how local governments borrow money and maybe even what a bond is and how it trades and who are the investors, could you give us a sense of what you do for a living, really? You know, what, why it is you've become quite interested in New Zealand councils and how they raise money and uh, how they borrow and, and the relationships between councils in New Zealand and the central government. What, what, what do you do? So, yeah, I work at a rating agency, Standard & Poor's. We've been rating councils in New Zealand for 29 years now, so we've always been involved there for three decades. Um, obviously, as councils borrow more money, as infrastructure requirements pick up, we're rating more councils. Uh, the LGFA was a, a real big issue maybe 10, 12 years ago when they set up. A lot more councils started borrowing through the LGFA. So essentially, our role is very much for investors. If a council borrows money, will the investor get the money back? They don't know the answer to that, so they come to us. So we have a narrow remit. We're not here to say a government's good or bad. We're here to talk to investors about getting their money back, yes or no. It's a bit like, um, I'm guessing, like a, a rugby game or a, a tennis match where you're not, not so much the referee, 
but more like a really informed commentator that everyone in the crowd looks to <laughs> to see whether you think it was in or out. Yeah, we help to explain to people what's going on. And like, as you touched on, bond investors and investors in general, some of them, are, most of them aren't in New Zealand. They're in Europe, they're in Asia, they're in America. They're not going to sit up at 3 o'clock in the morning to listen to something. That's what, that's what we do. We do that for them and they come to us for the advice. So you have all the fun of going through the accounts that the councils put out and listen to what the mayors and the chief financial officers are saying and what the finance minister's saying and what gets passed through parliament, all that fun stuff um, for your sins. And I'm, hope you, I'm sure you're, you're uh, well remunerated for that, which is, which is excellent. <laughs> uh, so, Anthony, you've come out with some reports in the last, uh, uh, this week, about New Zealand councils and the debt they issue. And what's your view on uh, the outlook for their credit ratings? What have you decided this week? Yeah, so we had a big announcement on Monday. Um, we actually revised the trend of the institutional settings for the country's local governments to weakening from stable. It's the first time since we've had the concept for more than 15 years that we've done this in New Zealand. Uh, essentially, the institutional framework is looking at the overall sector, the predictability of what's going on for local governments, the transparency and accountability, which is always very high in New Zealand, but also the revenue and expenditure balance. That is essentially how much are you borrowing in the short term and long term and are you going to actually correct those imbalances? So on Monday, we actually revised it to weakening for two main reasons. One is the revenue expansion balance. We are seeing New Zealand councils who are already highly indebted, already run large deficits compared to every other system we work in, getting even bigger deficits and getting even higher uh, debt levels. The deficit for the sector last year was the same, if not bigger, than most other systems during the peak of the pandemic. We're three years beyond that, and New Zealand councils are actually borrowing more today than three or four years ago. Um, so that's part of the issue we've raised. Compared to other countries where the, the debt levels may be around 60 to 80% of offering revenues, New Zealand's 185. Mm, could you explain for our audience how New Zealand councils and local government are a bit different to other local governments, other councils and state governments in other parts of the world? Because it seems strange. Why are our councils more indebted than, let's say, the Illawarra Council or the Berlin Council? Yeah, so we kind of talk about New Zealand councils being a, in between a municipality in Europe and America and an Australian state. Most new municipalities do things like um, you know, picking up the rubbish, doing roading, doing water. They don't do major infrastructure. The states and provincial governments usually do that. In New Zealand, they do that. Um, what we find in Europe is operating margins are quite narrow because they do a lot more health and education. So they have things like corporate taxes and company taxes and income taxes, GST. Uh, in New Zealand, you don't have those ongoing operating kind of responsibilities like health and education, which is great because it means you have really strong operating margins. But the downside is you don't have the second tier of government, which is the provincials and states. So the councils themselves are the ones running the infrastructure agenda, but they have less rating ability and less taxation ability than peers across the countries. So they don't have stamp duties, they don't have income, personal taxes, they don't have GST. Um, so it is a very, very secure rating source, which is property rates. And I'm sure all your listeners pay them regularly, so know what they are. But that's really it. 70 or 80% of revenue is that one revenue source. And councils are not generally willing to raise them at 15 to 20% per annum to pay for things. So we've got this sort of standoff here where 
the central government in New Zealand makes all the revenues from GST and income tax and doesn't pay it to the councils and effectively um, does quite well out of population growth. It contributes some of the money for the infrastructure for all the extra population, obviously pays for hospitals and schools and, and motorways. But a lot of the local roads, the water networks, they're paid for by the councils who don't necessarily benefit directly from all of this extra population through all of the extra GST and income taxes. Uh, what's the potential solution here to sort of uh, pull together these two disparate sides, one of whom uh, does quite well out of population growth and doesn't have to invest all the money in infrastructure, the other has to invest a lot of money in infrastructure and doesn't necessarily have the revenues. How do we sort of square that circle? Yeah, it's a very um, interesting topic because when you think about it at a high level, New Zealand's sovereign, from a central government point of view, has very, very strong fiscal outcomes. And that divide is actually widening at the moment. So New Zealand councils account for 10% of the country's debt, the sovereign council for 90 But when it comes to infrastructure spending, New Zealand councils are predominantly responsible for it. So we are seeing a divide between these things that are divergent amongst them. In other countries, we do have revenue sharing arrangements, not just through GST, but in Australia, for example, there's health and education agreements where the sovereign will pay 40 or 50% of it year on year. In New Zealand, we're seeing operating grants, including roading, maybe 10 or 15% of the budget and declining. And this is outside natural disaster support. Um, but the ongoing kind of revenue streams, there's a lot less um, kind of revenue sharing in New Zealand than we have in other systems. So one solution to kind of correct the imbalance was the former government's three waters or affordable waters. Um, we talk about that a lot in our report this week. That's what the sector is talking about. But that is not the only solution. There are other things out there. One is revenue sharing, giving more revenues to the local councils. Secondly, giving councils the ability to raise more revenues. Thirdly, councils just increasing the rates. They're extremely strong source of getting revenue. You have to pay them. So if councils really want to correct this kind of deficit that we're seeing and it's imbalance, they need to start jacking up their rates much higher than inflation. 10% last year sounded high, but inflation was 8 So in real terms, it's quite low. So there are other options here. Maybe the Crown takes over all roading responsibility. That hasn't been debated, but that's another solution. There's, there's many solutions, but unfortunately, we're not seeing much debate around them or even some movement on them. So let's talk about Three Waters. You mentioned it, it there. It was um, a debate uh, during the election campaign and and pretty much immediately after the formation of the coalition government, uh, they put out a 100-day plan which included the repealing of Three Waters and also the recently passed changes to the Resource Management Act. And uh, the repealing of that legislation actually goes through this week. Um, however, the new government hasn't come forward with some very clear replacements for Three Waters in terms of where might the councils get this extra capital and revenue that they need to invest in all the infrastructure. And remember, they're starting from, be from behind the start line, if you like, because there's this big infrastructure deficit. Um, can you tell us about, you know, how you as a ratings agency looked at that repeal of Three Waters and then the government's statements on what it was going to do or what it might do to uh, replace or to um, come up with another solution other than Three Waters? Yeah, sure. And I, just at the beginning, I'd say 
our decision on Monday was not in direct response to what the Crown had done. Uh, the decision has been in development for two or three weeks. We've been working on this stuff behind the scenes. Uh, I know the government did do that on Friday and we published Monday, but what we've done is taken several weeks to get prepared. So it's not directly related to their announcement last week, but it is related to the whole topic of three waters and policy certainty. Um, generally for the highest rated systems in the world, we know what things are happening. New Zealand's been there. They haven't had major reforms other than maybe the Auckland merger amalgamation um, since the late 80s. But what we're seeing lately is we don't know what's happening. We don't know whether the Crown is going to impose water reform, repeal it. Are they going to do something else? What does that look like? And our concern isn't that the new Crown won't do something that's helpful. The concern is we don't know what that is and we don't know when it's coming. We know that they've said they're going to pass legislation by mid-next year, but is it implementation mid-next year or is it five years away? These, these reforms started seven years ago and we haven't got them yet. So are we looking at a decade or more about reforms to address this issue? And that's where our concern comes in. Uh, and it's not just with us, councils as well. There's been a, a deadline extension to the long-term plans because they've had to put three waters in, but the law until Friday said you weren't allowed to. So how do you develop that within a deadline of the 30th of June? So what we're actually seeing is that extremely strong transparency and accountability. There are some issues popping up there now because of this uncertainty we're seeing across the whole sector. And unless councils have certainty, we can't get certainty, and therefore we're reflecting this in the, the weakening trend. And it's something that's really pressing on councils and also all parts of the what I call the development economy, um, those people who are looking to build new suburbs or looking to build apartment buildings or put in new roads or plan hospitals and schools, they really can't get going until they know there's going to be a water network there or the pipe is big enough. And because councils are the ones who have responsibility for water and will continue to have it now that Three Waters has been repealed, everything seems to sort of be on hold until we know how councils are going to solve this. Now, as you say, there's various ways they could they could just um, put the rates up really high, <laughs> really high, or they could um, uh, look to um, get some extra capital from the central government or get some extra revenue from the central government. But what we know in the last week or so and comments from the local government minister and the prime minister is that the central government seems reluctant to provide just plain capital grants to the councils and also has been reluctant to commit to, for example, sharing GST with the councils or offering a share of income tax. And the, the suggestion, uh, in my reading of it from their comments, is that they would like the councils to voluntarily come up with new council-controlled organisations able to raise money, to borrow money in their own right, and that the government, the central government, and the councils wouldn't have to guarantee the debt issued by these Crown-controlled organisations. Could you give us a sense of you know, how you, as a ratings agency, would view um, these potential crown-controlled organisations, which are different from the Three Waters vehicles, which were pitched as completely off-balance sheet, um, politicians not able to control whether or not water charges were there or how much was invested, but much closer to councils. How would you, how would you view that idea? Ah, well, the government won't have to ever bail these, thing, <laughs> these things out 
and and also politicians will remain in control of water charges and the like. How do you view that idea? Yeah, and these are extremely de- detailed and um, discussions we need to have, and we need to see the detail. But at a high level, the, the former government's three water reforms would work from a credit rating perspective. Were they the, the best solution? Maybe not. Were they the most complex one we saw? It was pretty complex to get the same solution as a simpler one. Where we kind of look at the CCOs is it depends on the ownership and control. So we look at these things through three lenses, which is business as usual. We just keep it on balance sheet. That's your water care and every other council right now. Uh, The Labor government were trying to get completely off balance sheet so there was no relationship at all. That's when you've got co-governance and that's when you've got all these other things. Um, You know, assets have to be publicly owned and controlled but off balance sheet or there's something in the middle which is generally where CCOs, which have got shared ownership and, and multiple councils, like the LGFA, actually fall in this grey zone. The former government was not interested in grey zone. They wanted definitively off. The grey zone is contingent liability. Does a contingent liability on the balance sheet? Yes or no. The question is not whether it's yes or no under the solution. It's probably yes. Does it matter? That's the question. The LGFA is guaranteed by, I think, 72 councils now. There's 78 members. Nearly every council is involved. We don't put $15 billion of debt as a contingent liability on Horofenua's little balance sheet. It's just not going to happen like that. So we put it on the balance sheet, but it has no rating impact at all. So there is a potential that this, these CCOs do get established. Um, we do have to look at them individually. If Watercare was just put to Watercare as a, a former entity like it was, and it was 100% controlled and owned by Auckland, we'd put it back on balance sheet. Um, because if something goes wrong at Watercare, investors can't get the assets under the laws. So what do investors do? The same investor funding Watercare is funding Auckland and they're funding Wellington. And if Auckland doesn't bail out Watercare, well, the investor's not going to start funding Auckland. They're not going to give them money to start funding the new football stadium or new roads. So there's a contagion risk across the entire sector when that happens. So there's always incentives, particularly water. And we've seen it in New South Wales, for example, where they try to do some of this stuff and it went pear-shaped and ministers started losing their jobs. When governments are losing their jobs, they spend money. We've seen that across the world. It's easier to pay somebody else's money than lose your job. And that's when it comes to water. It's very sensitive in that sense. That's right. Um, you can't live without water. And then you can't expand without water or build a house, really, without a connection to drinking water and a pipe out for all the stuff that we put out. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world. 
as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. So I'm, I'm trying to get a sense then of how we move forward and also what the best options might be from a cost point of view. Because uh, for a lot of people who may not understand the bond markets, if you're a bond investor, you're a pension fund or a, a sovereign wealth fund overseas or here in New Zealand, you know, we have uh, now the New Zealand Superannuation Fund and $100 billion worth of money in KiwiSaver funds. And these bonds look can look quite attractive. You know, they've got a, a very uh, solid revenue stream of interest coming in. It may not be the highest, but it's certainly not the riskiest. And there's a lot of demand to put savers' money into these bonds. But if I'm a fund manager, could you sort of set the scene for a, um, a layperson on, you know, when they consider, do I put my money into... Uh, a very specific type of bond connected to a particular asset in Horofenua, let's say, or I have a choice to put some money into, let's say, a, a, a plain vanilla New Zealand government crown bond. What are the potential risks and returns that I might want from those two tif- different types of bonds? And what am I thinking about as a, as a fund manager? And, you know, why might horofenua have to pay <laughs> a lot more in interest rates than, let's say, the New Zealand government. Yeah, and um, it's demand and supply uh, and, and risk, right? So New Zealand has, New Zealand sovereign has a lot more money going out the door, so there's a lot more supply there. Being a sovereign, it's the highest credit rating you'll get in any system because they can print money and take money. Um, they have taxation powers. Local governments have taxation powers. Banks don't. Corporates don't. So... There's a waterfall. It starts with the sovereign and works its way down. So local governments are usually the second highest rated things in the country because they're one tier below the government, the sovereign. Generally, investors will like sovereign because it pays uh, less interest, but it's safe because they know they're going to get the money back. Um, but they also look at liquidity. Liquidity is extremely important here. So Horofenua, for example, when we're using that, South Taranaki, we can use any regional council. We work on 25 of them. They borrow through the LGFA to get the aggregate demand up. So if you've got a council issuing $10 million here and there, an investor's going to say, well, if I buy that bond, I can't sell it. I have to hold it until maturity. There might be one buyer. I'm going to take a premium because I'll never be able to sell this bond for 10 years. LGFA is doing a billion, one and a half billion a year. They're actually getting everyone's money together and issuing it. It means liquidity is extremely, much, much better through the LGFA than local council. And investors are willing to buy it because they know if something changes, they change their mandate, they change their rules, they can actually sell it to somebody else and get their money back. Um, they don't have to hold it for five, seven, ten years until maturity. Um, but liquidity is extremely important. We see that. Look at Europe. <clears throat> we have governments in Europe which are in the triple B minus, so I can write at the bottom investment grade. Their interest costs are much lower than New Zealand because of the economic situation and the proximity to European investors. They know what Italy is doing. They're in bed when New Zealand's awake and they charge premiums for this type of thing. And as I said, New Zealand sovereign name is much bigger. They're much more comfortable holding that than an individual council. So it's a lot of different things they look at. Credit risk and liquidity are two of the main ones. So if you were the central government and you really wanted to get things done quickly and as cheaply as possible and you knew you had a problem in front of you, which is we need to invest a lot of money in our water networks 
to bring them up to standard, to make up for past underinvestment, but also to cope with population growth, which has run at between one5 to 2% for the last 20 years. And in fact, was 2.8% last year, the fastest population growth since 1946. If you're the central government, what is the fastest, cheapest way to solve this problem of connecting all of this money stuck in a, a pension fund here and overseas, and we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, what's the fastest, cheapest way to do that? Yeah, I mean, the cheapest way for ratepayers and taxpayers of residents is the sovereign, right? It has the biggest balance sheet. The water at 10 or $15 billion is a big number for councils. For the sovereign, it's quite small. Um, but you're talking about an economy of $400 million, roughly. If it's $20 billion, that's 5%. The New Zealand sovereign is the biggest borrower, the cheapest borrower in the country. It has the power to do it. Um, local councils being fragmented, it's harder to get the kind of demand there. And again, local councils will pay a premium at the same rating level as the sovereign. They will not get the same price. It's usually around 80 to 0.8 to 1% higher on very similar terms. So from a, a New Zealand ratepayer or taxpayer advantage, the cheapest way of doing it is the sovereign. It has the mass. It has the size. But again, it comes down to whether they want to do it, <coughs> local government act and the responsibility split. Those things need to be looked at. And whether that is a, a quick solution, it, it may not be. <laughs> Yes, um, it all comes down to politics in the end and about what the government believes is the uh, the best way to do it. And this government seems very reluctant to borrow money on the government's behalf to do it. Just just finally, uh, Anthony, um, when we we look at how bond markets work and 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 also, how bond investors view New Zealand, um, some ratepayers and taxpayers might have been hearing uh, some comments from the Prime Minister about New Zealand's finances being fragile and that the government needed to make some hard decisions to ensure that it retained the confidence of financial markets. But it sounds to me like there's actually quite a bit of confidence in the New Zealand sovereign uh, debt uh, to the point, actually, this week where a 30-year new bond was issued and there was four times as much demand <laughs> as was issued. Could you give us a sense from a ratings agency point of view and a bond market investor view whether they see the New Zealand sovereign debt as fragile and whether there would be any problems with you know a government saying, instead of, no, we're not going to borrow the money, but actually to say, yes, we do want to borrow the money, not all this year, you know, maybe over 10, 20 years to solve this problem. How would the financial markets, bond investors view that? Because in New Zealanders, we like to downplay ourselves and we like to say, oh, we're not very good at this. But, <laughs> you know, New Zealand has a AAA credit rating in, 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 the, in local currency terms, which is how we, we borrow these days. So how, how would the bond markets and the financial markets, the grown-ups of the financial world, how do they view New Zealand debt? It's generally very, very low risk. Um, from our point of view, AA plus foreign currency, AAA local, we'd like to look at the foreign currency because it's comparable with other countries. It's the second highest. So we have something like 10 AAAs in the world out of 140 sovereigns we rate. So it's the second notch out of 20 on the scale. It's extremely low risk. Bond investors know that. They like the rule of law. Um, as much as we hear, oh, there's a divide between uh, Labor and the National Party, 
in New Zealand context, yes, there is, but in the global context, politically, those two parties are aligned on 90% of what they're doing. You don't have the fragmented systems in Europe or America. Say Europe, you have six parties assigning, coming together to form a government. Um, the US, they're polar opposites. You don't have that in New Zealand. So the, the investors actually like that. They know they come to New Zealand, what they're going to get. They're going to get a well-disclosed, well-transparent system who's going to do the right thing. They don't have to worry about those type of things. And from a, a borrowing perspective, if they were to borrow at the sovereign level, net debt on our scale is around 30% of GDP. Um, for us to lower the debt assessment, it needs to double. Needs to, you, know, you think about that, an extra 30% of net debt. As I said earlier, debt is around $400 billion. That's $120 billion of extra debt they need to do just for us to lower the debt assessment. Wow. So there is a fair bit of headroom there from the sovereign's balance sheet. So 30% of GDP headroom. Because if I listen to the finance minister and the prime minister and what the words I hear in parliament, I would get the impression that we were almost bankrupt, that if we borrowed more money, suddenly interest rates would explode and we would lose access to financial markets. That doesn't sound the same message as what I'm hearing from what the actual financial markets are saying and doing day by day, minute by minute, with their pricing of government bonds and their ratings for our government bonds. Yeah, and you're right. We would, If it was an issue, we wouldn't have a AA plus rating. We wouldn't have a stable outlook. Now, I'm not saying go out and borrow $120 billion. I quite like to do that. Yeah. New Zealand's sovereign has headroom on its balance sheet to spend money. Some of the issues we've raised in the last few years have been a constant promise of a surplus, which has been spent year on year. That does say in the market, well, are you really serious about your forecasting? And I think the last kind of budget, they kind of pulled it right back. But from a fragile point of view, you don't have investment-grade ratings that are fragile. If they're, if they're fragile, they're not investment-grade. They're 10 or 15 notches below where New Zealand is right now. Anthony Walker, the um, Director for uh, Government Ratings for Standard & Poor's, talking to us from Melbourne on when the facts change. Anthony, thank you so much for explaining so clearly and lucidly all about our central and local government relations and some of the ways we could solve some of our huge infrastructure problems. Thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks for having me. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.